Relationships are like cars. You can't live with them and at times you can't live without them. And the reality is both of them require care, maintenance, skills, and a great deal of an understanding of how they work. And when it comes to mechanics, there are two types of people in the world. There's those who get it and those who don't. And me. I grew up in an environment where I had older brothers who looked after everything mechanical and all handiwork around the house. I didn't need to do anything to, to, to support them with cars and maintenance and all that type of stuff. So I grew up thinking that cars just work. You just drive. You get in and, and, and you reach your destination. Until um, uh, not long ago, uh, several years ago, I was leading a, a church uh, in Brunswick, which is about 35 minutes away from my house. And we had a, a meeting pretty early in the morning one day. I needed to leave the house about 6 o'clock in the morning. And I was really counting on the road to be quite empty. And we'll get there on time and, and have this meeting before our Sunday worship service. And the roads were fantastic. However, I hit almost every single traffic light you could think of that morning. I don't know why. There were no other cars coming the opposite way, but I needed to stop. And, uh, and the car took me literally. Every time I slowed down for the traffic light, the car will literally stop and won't start again. And you hear all this rattling noise in the background, and I'm thinking, Father God, just like Duncan did, Father God, just get me to that, serve, to, to that meeting today, and don't worry about the car. Whatever happens, happens. And miraculously, I honestly got there. I got to that church. It was about 6.30 or so, and, uh, and we, we had our meeting, then we had our service, and then we had lunch with several people in the church, and then, bang, I went down and remembered I need to switch the car on again. And as I started to switch the car on again, I heard the same rattling noise. So I did what a, what a really courageous man would do. I ran upstairs to where the building, where the church was, and I asked one of my friends to come and sort it out. He came down, and as soon as I said, look, mate, I don't know what's going on, but the car isn't starting. So I put the key in the ignition and just about to start. I said, stop, stop. I said, what's wrong? He said, can't you hear that the metal clunking against metal in, the, in, 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 the, uh, uh, in, in your engine. I said, uh, and what's wrong with that? And he said, mate, there, there, there isn't an ounce of oil in the car. I said, he said, didn't you notice the gauge, you know, the, the uh, light? I said, listen, there's lights comes and go all the time on this dashboard. I didn't think I needed to do anything. Well, thankfully, my friend and and another friend from the church said, don't worry about it, Peter. Just go home with Susie and I'll look after the car. They got the car towed to a mechanic. 2000 or so dollars later, I had a reconditioned motor, which was awesome. Because now I learned to check the light on the, on the dashboard for oil. Uh, you know, if I need to add oil, whether there was light or no light, I added oil. It was like, I'm going to put more oil. I'm not going to get this problem again. And it was about six or eight months later, I was going home from church pretty late at night, and the same noises occurred again. It's like, what the heck is going on now? So I, I got into the, uh, 
to a petrol station and I looked the, uh, the guy on the counter and I said, mate, I've been putting oil. <laughs> I've been putting oil in the car, but can you please help me out to see what's now wrong with my car? The guy doesn't know anything about me. I said, no, mate, I'm a bit busy. <laughs> so uh, I had to find a guy who's putting petrol in the car and I'm a stranger. I said, mate, can you please help me out? My car doesn't want to start. Anyway, he walked in the car and, and checked it. I said, there's no water. Well, nobody told me that. They said, put oil. Another reconditioned murder. And you think, I'm kidding you. Another six months later, the car stopped again. A little bit closer to home, next to a public oval, I parked the car there and put it on sale on eBay. And you're probably thinking two things. How on earth are you still married? Secondly, how much was the car? Let me tell you something. Knowing my mechanical abilities, I never drive a car I can't afford to lose. Because, because cars to me add value to my journey. They never, ever, ever reveal my value. What type of a person are you when it comes to relationship mechanics? Are you one of those people that get it? Don't you hate those people? They just get it. Put them in whatever circumstance, put them with whatever type, widows or strangers, difficult or not difficult, they just get it. They know how to relate. They, 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 they the bees, you know, the people get attracted to them. I watch them and I get tired, quite frankly. There are others who have no idea what to do with relationships, and they know it. And there is people like me. They're ab- absolutely clueless that they don't get it. Because relationships to some of us are mysterious. You don't know why they work and why they don't work. You wish they came with a manual or some lights flashing on a dashboard, but they don't. And for some of us, we have relationships at home or relationships in our work environment, in our neighborhood, or even in our church that seem to be so mysterious. We have no idea why they work, and why they stop. And the tendency that we all have is when one relationship doesn't work because we have every intention and desire to make our relationships work. But when relationships don't work, guess what we do? We label people difficult. They are difficult. They are a problem, and they need a reconditioned motor Or you want to invite them to grow relationally elsewhere. You don't want to connect with them. How about, how about if people weren't difficult but different? How about if people weren't necessarily going out of their way to make your life miserable, but you have not noticed the gauge gauge on, on the dashboard and figure out what pushes their button? What about if people's differences can be managed rather than difficulties that need to be fixed? Because quite frankly, if we can't figure out how people tick, how are we going to manage our relationships with them? It seems a bit mysterious, but isn't it true? 
that sometimes you don't even know how you fit. Isn't it true that sometimes you and I don't even know what is our relational pattern, how we operate relationally? I grew up in a family that was very loving. I grew up loving dad as my hero. I saw how hard he worked. I saw how kind he was to people and how sacrificially he served other people in his workplace and in his church. But I also observed alongside that how hard he was treated and how badly he was damaged as a result of people close and far. He's experienced misunderstanding, mistreatment, betrayal, and pain that was probably difficult than I wanted to observe the loved one go through. And it's no wonder as I grew up as an adult, I struggled with relationships. It's no wonder that there were some people in my world that made me feel so threatened and so frightened and wanted to run for my life. It's no wonder that at times, even at church, I, uh, I would leave Susie hanging around in, in the foyer and I would run five, ten minutes after the service and sit in the car park. And I was confused. What the heck is going on? If God created me to connect with people, how come I'm so frightened of connecting with people? And through the help of some professionals and some materials and literature that I've read, I discovered that my brain has a part of me that is so vulnerable, a part of me that experienced trauma and past experiences that were painful, and my brain, my frontal cortex, scans my relational environments and picks any cues that says this is a threat. And when I discover or my brain discovers they're a threat, all of a sudden, something in the back of my brain here that's called the amygdala would fire up like a smoke alarm and say, hey, back, uh, uh, threat, 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 do something, do something. And before your lo my logical brain could think through it, my amygdala would create what the uh, animal uh, brain would do and would make automated procedures type of reactions. And I got to know, finally, after many years, that Within me, there's three parts. There's the part that is vulnerable, that's been hurt. But I also, in my responses, I have two things. I have the harmonizer and I have the justice seeker. They're competing for one another's attention and to protect my vulnerable part. My harmonizer, every time there is a threat, my harmonizer says, hey, suck it up. Don't make a fuss. Don't worry about it. Just pretend everything's okay. Put a smile on. No matter how you feel, never say, say to anybody what, how you're feeling. You just lump it, you know, inside your cup with it, inside your heart. Don't say a thing, you know, uh, be submissive. Be, and it was all out of fear that if I speak up, what will happen? I might actually get friction into the relationship and it may lead to unpredictable circumstances and betrayal and maybe even hurt that my harmonizer trying his hardest to protect me from. But then after a little while, my justice seeker will say, what the heck? I can't live the rest of my life 
being manipulated and controlled and suffer the pain deep inside me, what I've experienced when I was young. So it's like a firefighter that comes in and it tries to push everything and disappears after the aftermath. Creates a, a havoc in relationships and disappears. So that's when the harmonizer comes up and says, See, I told you, you should have shut up. You shouldn't have said a thing. Just suck it in, princess, and don't tell anybody that you're upset. And I wish I could tell you this was my past. Only several weeks ago, one of the people that I mentored sent me a, a, a dream he didn't know what it was related to. And in that dream, I can't share everything about it, but one of it was I was sitting in the back of the church, passive, unwilling to do something that required action. And I knew, I knew that that's my harmonizer taking over because I'm crippled by fear. And I don't know about you. I don't know about the people that you relate to. What is the relational pattern? What's motivating their action? What factors are leading them to do things that you look at and say, what the heck, where did they come from? And you so easily describe them and label them as problems, as difficult people. And you read books that say, how do you get difficult people to disappear? No matter how hard, you try, they don't. Because they're not difficult. They're merely different. And they don't have the capacity to explain to you the relational pattern that's determining why they do what they do. So are they so messed up that there is no hope for them? Am I so messed up that there is no hope for me? Or more deeply, are you so messed up in your relational pattern that there is no hope for you? Friends, regardless of your age, regardless of your religious affiliation, and regardless of your mechanical skills, I want to tell you today, with every fiber of my being, and I pray that Almighty God would shake your heart with that, that regardless of your relational pattern, you are not a write-off, and you deserve to be loved and to love. And God Almighty, who revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, who came to earth as a perfect individual, that if he looked at any of us, he would have seen your relational pattern and he would have said, mate, you're messed up. Yet that very Jesus selected individuals to be his closest friends, people who are like you and I have messed up relational pattern. And when you read about the selection, Jesus wasn't tricked. It's not like we, you and I, when we, when we gain friends, we think they are lately the best thing since sliced bread. And only after several months you realize nobody is perfect. And you want to run for your life because you discover their reality. But Jesus knew the people who whom he selected and he knew how messed they are before he selected them. Yet he selected them never the less. And in Mark chapter 3, it tells us about a couple of people that Jesus selected and appointed to be the most influential people in his world. And he says, he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name, the nickname Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, 
the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Balanergus, which is sons of thunder. And lest you mistaken this nickname, it wasn't complimentary. It was like saying, you're a thunderbolt. How do I know that? Because the stories in the gospel reveal the disposition of John and James who were feisty, selfish, and angry. One time, John and James brought their mummy to talk to Jesus on their behalf. And, he, and their mummy took Jesus by the hand and says, Jesus, I want to tell you something. We all know you're a top shot. We all know you're, you're the Messiah. You're the king. You're going to rule. And listen, my, you have 12 friends here, but you're not my boys. James and John, they, they're cute. They've got, they're your most loyal people. One of them to sit on your right, one on the left. Forget the rest. They were selfish. They didn't care. They didn't give a hoot about the feelings or the experiences of their friends that they've been with. Not only that, another time they, they were walking around and realized that some people in the name of Jesus were casting out demons. They were, they were creating a, a, an incredible environment of freedom for others around them. And, and, and John came to Jesus and says, Guess what, Master? We noticed that some people are doing good in your names, but they're not part of us. They're not included in the in-group, and we nearly killed them. We told them, shut the heck up and don't do that again. That's the type of people Jesus selected. And in Luke chapter 9, I want to read you just another section that reveals their life. And in Luke chapter 9, and from verse 51, immediately after John has said, you know, because that one wasn't with us, we tried to stop him. Look at what, what happened next. In verse 51, it says, As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So he was heading into a period of ministry in Jerusalem. And he sent messenger on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. This was almost, scholars tell us, this was almost a three-day trip. They've, they've traveled quite a fair bit. But Samaritans didn't like the Jews. So when they... Uh, asked to be included and to be sh given sh shelter at night. It said, but the people there did not welcome him. They rejected Jesus and rejected his group. So see what happens to uh, James and John. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? That's a bit of an overreaction, bro. You're going to destroy the people you don't like and you're going to get God's approval on it. It's like saying, God, why don't you please, you know, this guy, this brother, these sisters have been so annoying. I pray in the name of Jesus that a, a train will strike them and they will collapse. And they'll be destroyed in the name of Jesus. That's absurd, isn't it? But that's the type of people who have had such a, a difficult relational pattern that created within them a response that is not really what Jesus has in mind. Jesus wasn't surprised. He knew what he can make out of those people. Because just like my car went completely wrecked to the mechanic, 
who returned it in a mint condition, reconditioned murder. God could do the same with John. And the incredible thing, the son of thunder became a loving wonder. John himself, who absolutely hated People, in a way that he was willing to destroy them, became the most loving person, titled and nicknamed the Apostle of Love. In fact, as you read his letters, known as the letters to John, he has three letters. John 1, for creativity's sake, John 1, John 2, and John 3. You realize how much he focused on people loving one another. And I'm just going to read you a couple of verses only from 1 John chapter 3. It says this, verse 11, it says, This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Verse 14, it says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And in verse 18, it says, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. John became the apostle of love. In fact, scholars tell us that there's at least a, a 40 mentions in the, in the book of 1 John. I didn't count on myself. Don't send me emails. There's at least 40 mentions of the word love or its derivative in the book of 1 John. The church traditions tell us that John in the end of his life lived in a place called Ephesus. And every time when he was really old, they would actually carry him uh, to come and, and put him in front of the church to preach. And it seems like every time towards the end of his life, when you want to hold to every gem that he speaks, he would say to them, love one another. That's it. So after a little while, when they got sick of it, they said to him, John, do you have something else you would like to share with us? He said to them, do that first. Then I will share something else. Because love became his message. And I know. We sit here and we say, love this and love that. But the reality is this is probably the very reason why you didn't really follow Jesus wholeheartedly in your relationships because it felt like it's unrealistic. His commands are fuzzy that are not really meaningful in the midst of the challenges of life. Love what in the midst of conflict? Love what when people are walking all over me? Love what when there is no justice in my environment? Love what? And friends, believe me, love is not a warm, fuzzy feeling that makes people walk all over you. He did not just say love. He says love in truth. And he introduced us to the concept that love by itself isn't sufficient. In fact, love without truth is hypocrisy. It's been well said that life, love without truth is hypocrisy and truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy and truth 
without love is brutality. We've got to find a pattern that mingles both love and truth. Where do you get that from, Peter? Well, the next two epistles, the next two letters that John sent, he sent one to a church and one to an individual. One to a, a woman in a church that resided in her house. And he says to her that he loved her and he loved, he says, to the chosen lady and her children. That could be figuratively the church or it could be a lady that's actually um, a, 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 a real person. And her children whom I love in the truth. And not I only, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. And to that very lady in, in verse 9 up till 11, he gives an example of how we can balance love and truth. In those times, uh, the, the church had a lot of travelers, a lot of missionaries, if you like, a lot of teachers that went from one place to another to speak. Uh, you know, about the doctrines and the teaching of the Christian faith. And because, the, you know, we didn't have hotels, you know, they didn't have hotels or safe places where they could reside and, and receive hospitality, the Christians and even non-Christians will provide hospitality out of love for those people who are traveling uh, and, and for the strangers. Yet, there was a group of people who weren't living according to the doctrine, uh, the, the true doctrine of the faith. So John here gives them the other side of love. Love would say, take him in no matter what. Even if they're saying the wrong thing, even if they're undermining the teaching of Jesus, we just love them, pat them on the back. You know, we've got to tolerate people. We've got to do what, what needs to be done. But John has a different idea. He says, anyone who turns ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you, receive him. No, he didn't. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, if there is heresy, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked works. Are you serious? Showing that type of hospitality and care and love is now a wicked work? Is doing bad? Yeah. Because John says there is love, but there must be a confrontation of truth. Because truth has to be mingled and aligned with love. And love with truth. It says you need to confront it. It doesn't mean that you never relate to them, but it means you need to confront the truth when it comes to heresy. And yet you might say, of course, when it comes to teaching and, and heresy, of course, we need to be vigilant. Look at the next epistle. And this is more personal than it is just heresy. John here writes to a friend called Gaius. He almost uh, was a leader of a church and he's telling him about another guy whose name is a bit difficult. So if I, uh, don't, if I mispronounce it, that's just my Egyptian accent, forgive me. And it says this, I wrote to that church, but Dutrephus, goodness gracious, but difficult. Deutrephus, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. That's nothing to do with John because he had written a letter which, is, which we don't have at the moment. Uh, but he didn't want to abide by the letter. So if I come, look at this. I will call attention to what he is doing 
gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friends, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Don't imitate what's evil, but what is good. And what John is saying here, I will confront uh, that person. Not because of heresy. Nothing written there about heresy. But I confront him because he's doing the wrong thing and creating disunity. Love would say, forget about it. Let him be. Let God deal with it. But you know when he says, I will call, at, uh, I will call attention to what he's doing. In fact, most commentators tell us that's a very mild interpretation of what John was trying to say. It almost relates to what written in, in the book of Proverbs chapter 21, and I think verse 21, it says, I will remind them of their sin. And John was saying, I'm going to confront that. I'm going to call it the way it is. I'm going to call it evil, just like I told you it's evil. And I'm going to rebuke it, regardless what happens, regardless of the cost. I will mingle love with truth and truth with love. And friends, for many of us, we either go the harmonizer way or the justice seeker way. Because that's our previous experiences, that's our relational pattern, that's the way we found life works and relationship on the, on, in the road without getting any hard crashes. But maybe, just maybe, you and I could take our pattern back to the mechanic, the divine mechanic that you and I need more than anything else. And we'll say to him, would you recondition our mess? That you and I would have a pattern that is able to balance love and truth regardless of the consequences. For some of us that, that, that you know, go full blast with truth, we can be harsh. We can be controlling, we can be manipulative, we just want justice to the, to the cost of, of, of being harsh on other people. And maybe that comes from the way we've been betrayed, the way that we've been hurt, the way we've been hard done by and mistreated. And, 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 and definitely that's so natural and that's so, you have every right to feel what you feel. But imagine if you could. Not just be harsh and say, that's just the way I am. But mingle truth with love. And for some of us who are always succumbing to be suck-ups and, and, and be so petrified to share our opinions lest people forsake us or exclude us or, or, or mistreat us or, or whatever it might be. How, how, how would you feel if you actually could speak your heart and say the truth but do it in love? But what would happen, Peter? People might not like me. Well, this is what I want to say to you, friends. When you get a reconditioned pattern of relationship, it comes with a brand new perspective on what it's like to be in relationship. Just like cars. Just like cars, you will realize that relationships don't just reveal your value, but they reveal the value that you add. You will realize that the car, just like a relationship, is not a destination. It's just a vehicle. Relationships are like vehicles. They reveal the value you add, not how valuable you are. 
When you think relationships say so much about how valuable you are, you're holding to them with their life. You're so petrified that somebody may not be with you anymore, that somebody might ignore you next time you see them in the shopping center, or a group may not send you a text message, a group text message, or someone might defriend you on Facebook, or whatever it might be. But when relationships are held with loose hands, when you can drive that which you can lose, when you, which you can afford to lose, when you can drive something that doesn't create your identity, but you're there to give and add value to others, you're selflessly giving out of the goodness of your heart, whether people receive it or not, that doesn't create your identity. And I want to invite you this week, just before we talk about other tools of how we could live out, this new pattern of truth and love. I want to invite you, whether you're a Christian, exploring spirituality or just merely visiting with us for this series. I want to invite you to seek God. And we believe that God is nearer to you than you'd ever imagine. The same God that turned a, a son of thunder into a loving one that can do the same for you and can do the same for me. You are and I am a work in progress and we still have to maintain the pattern. But friends, you don't have to be a victim to your relational pattern because there is an opportunity to have a reconditioned relational pattern by the most awesome mechanic you will ever come across who loves you and cares about you. Who knows that you deserve to be loved and to be able to love. Let me pray for you. Father, we all come from different walks of life and different experiences. Part of us has been sabotaged and wrecked by past experiences that we brought upon ourselves or that we were unfairly treated. Regardless of whether it's our fault or the fault of others, Father, our relational pattern is messed up. And relationships, not because of other people, but merely because of us, can seem so mysterious and hard to navigate. And without noticing, bang, in the back of our car, we get hit. So where did that come from? Why did that happen? And how can I respond? And today for me and for my brothers and sisters and and everybody else that may hear this message. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would renovate, that you would recondition, that you would recreate within us a relational pattern that is so secure in you, that we're there to add value to others instead of gain our value 
from relationships. Come by the power of your spirit right here and right now and meet us where we are. Help us to know that you have not given up on us regardless of what others think of us. And help us to believe that because of you, we deserve to be loved and deserve to love. And that no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, it is your heart's desire for us to connect with others in a way that enriches life, that brings the best out of us and them, and that reveals Jesus, the most awesome, relational, matchless friend we could ever imagine. We pray this in your name. Amen. God bless you.